This episode is brought to you by Challengers Comics and Conversation. Go to challengerscomics.com and start the conversation now. Daniel's Law LLC in Georgia. Visit dlawllc.com. Kerberos Productions. The minds behind the games enter the pit and kaiju a go-go. Search for Kerberos, K-E-R-B-E-R-O-S, on Steam, or go to kerberos-productions.com to check out their growing catalog of titles. Hey there, fellow conductors of the metaphysical, and welcome to the crossword for the week of November 21st, 2016. This week on the show, we have something a little different for you. In celebration of what would have been Harold Ramis's 72nd birthday today, we're going to be airing a lecture that Harold gave at the Chicago Humanities Festival. This is something that happened in November of 2009. It's him talking about his favorite comedy films. It's a lot of fun and, and a good memory of Harold. Still playing with toys.net presents the Ghostbusters Interdimensional Crossroad, the biggest podcast since 1909. Stop great. News, interviews, and commentary on everything Ghostbusters. Are you the key? Here are your hosts, Troy Benjamin and Chris Stewart. Oh, we have fun. That's good now. Thank you. All right. I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> Pay no attention to the guy with the camera. That's, uh, that's for the website. I have here a list of uh, the 100 funniest movies of the last 100 years from AFI. And as Avi said, I have 4% of those movies. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think it, this is going to take about 90 minutes. So if you have a dinner reservation and you have to leave, just you know, go quietly. I won't be insulted or offended. Um, this is an interesting time for me. I'm, I'm going to be 65 in November. So I was born. I look good, right? This lady is like. <laughs> 65 is not that old, I'm thinking. My father's 94. <clears throat> and still funny. Uh, but it makes me, uh, I'm thinking back to 1944 when I was born, and I'm old enough to remember a time before television when the family sat around and actually listened to radio. Uh, and I was around for, hey Billy, <laughs> and I was around for the, uh, the, the real beginnings of television uh, when all of America watched the same shows. <clears throat> and most of our, everyone's favorite shows were the comedies. Uh, Milton Berle and Jackie Gleason and Sid Caesar in the show of shows. Uh, later, the Steve Allen show, I Love Lucy, all that stuff uh, kind of entered the American consciousness. And mostly it was uh, extensions of vaudeville and older theatrical forms. Ernie Kovacs came along and started doing some real original kind of surreal television. Um, but for me, what was really uh, engrossing in television were the movies that were recycled on TV. Uh, Hollywood and TV were at war. Uh, Hollywood would not license contemporary films to television. So to all television could do was recycle really old stuff. <clears throat> so if you were a kid watching TV in the 50s, you saw all of silent comedy, uh, from Chaplin to Max Sennett and the Keystone Cops, Laurel and Hardy, Harold Lloyd, Buster Keaton. That was what I grew up on. <clears throat> So um, being <clears throat> the son of the grandson of immigrants, uh, Jewish immigrants, and uh, uh, working class, and you know, lower middle class, middle middle class uh, on a good day, uh, 
I kind of really, I, I identified most strongly with the uh, Marx Brothers. Uh, my father had a very dry kind of Groucho Marx uh, sense of humor. Uh, his brothers weren't funny, but uh, <laughs> uh, they were kind of my comic ideals. And, and those were the movies that really made me laugh the most. So I, I brought a clip from, uh, from A Night at the Opera. So why don't we take a look at that one? Do they allow tipping on the boat? Oh, yes, sir. Have you got two fives? Yes, sir. Well, then you won't need the 10 cents I was going to give you. Well, that's fine. If that steward is deaf and dumb, he'll never know you're in here. Oh, I'm sure that's all right. Yes? We've come to make up your room. Are those my hard-boiled eggs? I can't tell until they get in the room. Come on in, girls, and leave all hope behind. But you've got to work fast because you've got to get out in 10 minutes. Hey, come on, though. Take off, and they're going to fix the bed. Say, uh, I'd like two pillows on that bed there, huh? All right, bring me. Say, there's a slight misunderstanding here. I said the girls had to work fast, not your friend. He's still asleep. You know, he does better asleep than I do awake. Hey, he always sleeps that way. Now he's half asleep. Yes, he's half asleep and half Nelson. All right, come yes? on. Yes? I'm the engineer. Come on. I'm to turn off the heat. Well, you can start right in on him. Wake up, Tomasso. Tomasso, we're going to eat so. You know, if it wasn't for Gutlieb, I wouldn't have got this room. Just hold him there a second. Yes? Did you want a manicure? No, come on in. I hadn't planned on a manicure, but I think on a joiny like this, you ought to have every convenience you can get. Hey, listen, I'm getting the manicure. Get out of here, will you? Did you want your nails long or short? You better make them short. It's getting kind of crowded in here. I don't know. This isn't the way I pictured an ocean voyage. I always visualized myself sitting in a steamer chair with a steward bringing me bouillon. Come on, Ricardo. You couldn't get any bouillon uh, in here unless they brought it in through a keyhole. I'm the engineer's assistant. You know, I had a premonition you were going to show up. The engineer's right over there in the corner. You can chop your way right through. Say, is it my imagination or is it getting crowded here? Yeah. Well, I got plenty of room. Yes? Is my Aunt Minnie in here? Well, you can come in and prowl around if you want to. If she isn't in here, you can probably find somebody just as good. Well, could I use your phone? Use the phone? I'll lay even money you can't get in the room. How do you do? Let's go to be in New York before you can get to that phone. I seen the mop up. Just the woman I'm looking for. Come right ahead. Well, let me start on the ceiling. It's the only place that isn't being occupied. Tell Aunt Minnie to set up a bigger room, too, will you? Ah, come right ahead. Hey, do it. Oh, the food. We're waiting all the food. afternoon for you, Uh, amazing. <laughs> Coconuts, monkey business, animal crackers, duck soup, horse feathers, day at the races, night at the opera. Wit, anarchy, and the triumph of the common man over the pretensions and prejudices of the ruling power elite. The Marx Brothers, Groucho, Chico, Harpo, and Carl. That's what I got. <laughs> That's what I got from the Marx Brothers. Uh, uh, it was uh, a, a great lesson in comedy and, and a, an actual political point of view. Um, I also love the screwball comedies of Howard Hawks, uh, bringing up Baby's Girl Friday, 
other films like The Thin Man, My Man Godfrey, Ninochka, The Philadelphia Story, and uh, of course, uh, Frank Capra's uh, feel-good films, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, uh, and It's a Wonderful Life, of course. Uh, but Capra also could do screwball comedy. Uh, it happened one night as a classic, and one of my favorites was Arsenic and Old Lace. Uh, I loved Cary Grant. My, my great movie heroes were Cary Grant and Errol Flynn. I wanted to be both. <laughs> and I also wanted to be Groucho and Harpo. So uh, those were my kind of role models. My father was way too lazy to be any kind of role model. He just sat in a chair, tossed off one-liners, and kind of laughed. And, uh, <clears throat> but uh, these were screwball comedies, fast-talking, witty, and sophisticated. Great writing, wonderful acting. Here's Arsenic and Old Lace. in this house. Now you look here, Aunt Abby. Don't you try to get out of this. That's another one of your gentlemen, and you know it. Mortimer, how can you say such a thing? That man's an imposter. <laughs> and if he came here to be buried in our cellar, he's mistaken. <laughs> you admitted to me that you put Mr. Hoskins in the window seat. Yes, I did. Well, this man couldn't have just got the idea from Mr. Hoskins. Oh, no. By the way, where is Mr. Hoskins? He must have gone to Panama. But you buried him? No, no, not yet. He's just down there waiting for the services, poor dear. Oh. We haven't had a minute, what with Jonathan in the house. Jonathan? Oh. Dear, <laughs> we've always wanted to hold a double funeral. But I will not read services over a total stranger. <laughs> total stranger? And Abby, how can I believe you? There are 12 men down in the cellar and you admit you poisoned them. Yes, I did. But you don't think I'd stoop to telling a fib? <laughs> Martha! Martha, what do you think has happened? A fib! How about Cary Grant shamelessly looking right at the camera? I mean, is that... <laughs> uh, but uh, he could get away with anything. Uh, <clears throat> film comedy in the 50s for me was Jerry Lewis and Danny Kaye. Uh, and then uh, as we got toward the 60s, uh, Billy, great Billy Wilder comedies, Some Like It Hot in the Apartment. Um, on TV, Dobie Gillis, uh, in print, Max Schulman and uh, Mad Magazine. And then I went to college in 62. Uh, 62 was a <clears throat> kind of watershed year to be going to college. Uh, I told people I, when I went away to college, I'd look like John Kennedy. By the end of college, I'd look like John Lennon. Uh, <laughs> and I had politics like uh, Nikolai Lennon. <clears throat> But um, after, the, uh, after the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, in 62 and then the Kennedy assassination, uh, comedy was a little hard to come by through the mid-60s. 
but a couple of Sid Caesar's writers uh, were keeping it alive. And by my senior year, I discovered uh, Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks, 2,000-year-old man. <clears throat> um, almost everyone I know in comedy who grew up at that time uh, listened to this material. I've worked with Billy Crystal a couple of times. He, he can quote any line from Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks. Uh, same with Paul Reiser. We did a pilot for CBS. And Paul, we, he and I, would, all day we would just trade Mel Brooks lines. So here's a little audio clip from uh, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner uh, at the Cannes Film Festival. Ladies and gentlemen, we are at the Cannes Film Festival here in Lower Italy. And we're going to meet some of the producers, directors, and stars of the films that are being exhibited here for the annual competition. Uh, first, I'd like you to meet the German representative from Nazi, Narzi, Narzi, <laughs> from the Narzi Film Company, uh, Herr Adolf Hartler. <laughs> uh, good afternoon, uh, Herr Hartler. Heil Hartler, how are you? Uh, now, uh, this, uh, this is a strange name. It's Narzi Films. It's yes, we, well, we... Well, that I, doesn't have anything to do with Nazi, does it? No, are you kidding, Vivi? They are worst enemies. We are against them. We always were. I had a... <laughs> well, uh, I, I've heard that... In my own home, we, we hit a Jewish family. <laughs> oh, well, uh, I've heard that there were many Germans We hit who... them for a while and then turned them over to the Gestapo. <laughs> Sir, what did you do personally during the war? Oh, well, I was a baby during the war. I was maybe four or five years old. It was terrible. I mean, I didn't sir, know what was going on. Sir. I was so confused. Sir, just a moment. We, just we a moment. German, we did a German tykes were confused. Yes, sir. It's hard for me to believe that you were a little German tyke because you look to me to be a man of 60, 65 years old. Oh, well, you know, we had nothing to eat, and I, <laughs> I've aged terribly. Sir... Sir, you're wearing your bathing suit, I noticed. Yes, yes. And uh, as you scratched your head, I noticed a little SS tattooed under your arm. Oh, what does that mean? Oh, oh, uh, well, wait. Oh, oh that's, uh, that's the Simon Says. Uh, uh, what? Simon Says. Uh, we play that on the beach. I'm the captain of the Simon Says team. And that's where we get SS. Do you think it's worth tattooing on your arm Simon just to be says. Simon Says? Oh, well, Viva, I'm serious about the game. I love it, and so I had myself tattooed, Simon Says. How did you feel about the, the motion picture, Stanley Kramer's motion picture, Judgment in Durham? Unfair. <laughs> uh, why did you consider it unfair? Well, because he didn't tell the whole truth. Uh, uh, what was the picture about, really, about a, a misunderstanding, really? <laughs> I mean, look, you have, uh, you, you send people to camp, don't you, in the summer? <laughs> we sent a few people to camp. I don't know what the whole fuss is about. Well, sir, um... Sent some nice people to sir, camp. did you, did you know him? Mostly in the summer. <laughs> How did you feel about Adolf Hitler personally? Oh, well, I, I, I thought that he made some terrible errors. Uh, <laughs> losing the war was a big error. Uh, so, obviously Mel Brooks has this uh, ongoing fascination with Nazis and all things Nazi. Um, 
I uh, started acting in college, serious acting. I'd always been performing. I started performing music when I was 13 years old, playing the guitar and singing. Went to the Old Town School of Folk Music starting in 1960. Uh, and did skits and shows, musical skits and shows. But in college, I was in my first serious play, Oedipus Rex. I was uh, cast as the priest of Zeus. I opened the play with a two and a half minute speech and, uh, and then disappeared. Did not appear in the rest of the play. So, but I stayed in makeup and costume for the rest of the play so I could take a bow at the end two and a half hours later. Um, <laughs> But we rehearsed the, uh, we rehearsed the play um, uh, a lot. We had a dress rehearsal. Uh, and there was no uh, curtain. There was, it was a proscenium stage. But uh, it was a, they had built the stage in levels. There were stairways leading up to the temple of Zeus. And at the beginning of the play, the lights would come up. And I'd be kneeling at the, at the doors of the temple and then turn and give my speech. Well, opening night came. And um, they called places. Lights went out, and I realized something was terribly different. We had always rehearsed the play with a light on, so we could find our places on stage. On opening night, there were no lights. It was pitch black. So in the dark, you could hear the actors stumbling out on stage, like <laughs> tripping over the scenery, clunk, clunk, clunk. And I thought, oh my god, i got to find my spot in, in the dark. So I, I, I was careful not to fall. I, I worked my way up. I got to the top level. I got down on my knees, felt the wall, got down on my knees, and prayed that I was in front of the doors where I was supposed to be. The lights came up, and I was not. I was, <laughs> I was facing a blank wall <laughs> about five feet from where I was supposed to be. So on my knees, I started shuffling <laughs> across to where I was supposed to be. In 1967, uh, Carl Reiner uh, directed the film Enter Laughing about his early days trying to be an actor just out of high school. Here he is in, in his first uh, play. Jose Ferrer plays the impresario, the director, uh, great actor of the company. Elaine May plays his daughter. And here's uh, Rennie Santoni uh, as Carl Reiner's uh, surrogate in Enter Laughing. Stupid. For all we know, Jeff Henning might be anywhere. Perhaps your waiting is over. That must be Jeff now. Come in, Jeff. It must have been the wind. Must have been a peddler. Get on stage! Thank you. 
note, knowing you as I do, I'm sure that you trust you have not kept us waiting too long. I thought so. Time has no meaning. It's good to see you back. Sit down, my friend. What's the matter with him? Nothing. He's acting. My friend, I look at you and I see a stranger. <laughs> You've only yourself to blame, Jeff. You disappeared without a trace. Without a trace. <laughs> That's not true. That's not true, Horace, and you know it. How dare you. Jeff, do you mean that you think that Horace knew of your whereabouts? Yes. Ask him. <laughs> What's wrong with him? Nothing. Whether or not I knew of Jeff's whereabouts is entirely of no consequence. It in no way alters the terms of the will. So, may we have it read? Certainly. I have it. There is in existence another brown envelope which may alter the terms of the will. I don't believe it. You're lying. Am I really? Just give me 24 hours to locate a certain leather briefcase and I may be in a position to prove my point. <laughs> Good luck on your journey. Goodbye, Angela. Queen Harriet. Uh, that was, <laughs> Rob Reiner was on stage. As a, that's a great... There's hysterical scenes in that movie, and it's not very well known. Uh, Carl, uh, Rob Reiner's in that movie, as, almost as an extra. He has one or two lines. Um, <clears throat> while Carl and Mel were pursuing their uh, insane Yiddish sensibility in the late 50s and early 60s, something was happening at the University of Chicago uh, that really would change American comedy forever. Uh, Mike Nichols and Elaine May, The Compass and The Second City uh, as an extension of The Compass, uh, they were exploring things that had not really been talked about in American comedy. Uh, there was a heavy Freudian kind of influence. <clears throat> Existentialism was the, the key word, uh, the, the coffee house and uh, sensibility, the beat generation. Finally found a comic voice. And uh, <clears throat> when I first heard Mike Nichols and Elaine May, I thought, yeah, that's, that, that's good. That's something I, th I would like to emulate somehow. So here's an audio clip from Mike Nichols and Elaine May uh, called Mother and Son. Hello. Hello, Arthur. This is your mother. <laughs> Do you remember me? <laughs> hi. Mom, hi. I, I was just going to call you. Is, is that a funny Arthur, thing? You know that I had my hand Arthur, on the phone. Arthur, you were to supposed call? to call yeah. me last Friday. Uh, mother, darling, I just didn't have a second and you I could didn't cut have my a throat. Second. I was so busy. Arthur, I was, sat I, oh, by no. that phone I know. I know. all day I know. Friday. It was just work, work, work. And, and all darling, day Friday night. I, I kept thinking, I got to call mom. All day Saturday. Did, oh, listen, believe me. All day me, Sunday. I, and oh, your father said to me, Phyllis, eat something. You'll faint. Darling. I said, no, Harry, no. I don't want my mouth to be full when my son called Mom. He never called. Mother, I was sending up Vanguard. I didn't have a second. Well, it's always something, isn't it? Please, don't just tell me how you are, Mom. Tell me how you are. How are you? I'm sick. 
I'm, I'm sorry to hear it. I really am. What's wrong? Nothing. <laughs> you know what it is, honey. Yeah. It's the yeah. same thing it's always been. Yeah, sure, yeah. It's yeah. my nerves. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And yeah. I went to the doctor, yeah. and uh, he told me yeah. right out. Yeah. He said, yeah. uh, listen, Mrs. White, yeah. Yeah. who are you fooling? Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. You are a yeah. very nervous, yeah. Yeah. very high-strung yeah. woman. Yeah. yeah, well, God knows that's true, yeah. And yeah. you cannot stand yeah. the slightest aggravation. Yeah, sure, well, yeah. yeah. I said, doctor, yeah. I know that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I know yeah, that, yeah. that yeah, too. I said, but you see, doctor, uh -huh, I, uh, uh, mm -hmm. I have this son. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, he is. You know, it's the truth. The boy is not lying. He is. He's very busy. You see, doctor, he's too busy to pick up a phone and call his mother. Honey, listen, Mom. Well, dear, Arthur, I want you to when tell I said Mom. that to him, that man turned pale. Right, dear, Mom. He Mom. said, Mrs. White, Mom. I have been a doctor for 35 years, right. and I've never heard of a son too busy to call his mother. Right, Mom, dear, That's listen, just I... what he said to me, Arthur. I know, honey, I And wanna... that man is a doctor. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I still say that whenever I can, and that man is a doctor, you know. <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, uh, in England, uh, another school of comedy was developing. Uh, first, it was uh, Peter Sellers and Spike Milligan. Uh, they did The Goon Show in England. They had a big influence on what became the establishment. I forgot if they were at Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, but it was uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore and Alan Bennett and Jonathan Miller. And they were doing a, a kind of British form of what was happening at the Compass in Second City. Uh, it, it, with a different cultural flavor, uh, but they shared something, uh, which Bernie Sollins uh, always expressed to me as uh, always work from the top of your intelligence. Um, <clears throat> and he uh, always mentioned, let's raise the level of reference. And, and British comedy uh, was very smart. It just seemed so smart. Uh, I had been an editor at Playboy magazine, and uh, when I went to London for the first time in 1971, and I was uh, told to look up Victor Lowndes, who was a Playboy executive, ran the European operation for Playboy. I went to his um, house in Connaught Square, which was known as kind of the London Playboy Mansion. And uh, Victor knew I was, had done a little Second City before I got there. And uh, he said, uh, what do you think of Monty Python? And I said, uh, who? And he, uh, who's Monty Python? He said, well, it's not a person, it's a group. Um, I, but I, I realized I just jumped past uh, the establishment. Um, I, I, the British comedies of the 50s and 60s were very appealing to me. Uh, it was always Peter Sellers and Alec Guinness and Alistair Sim, um, Kind Hearts and Coronets, Lady Killers, Man in a Cocked Hat, Lavender Hill Mob, Green Man, Man in the White Suit, Captain's Paradise, I'm All Right, Jack. Uh, and then, um, all right, Sellers. Uh, finally teamed up with Terry Southern, uh, writer Terry Southern and the director Stanley Kubrick made one of the great comedies of all time. We'll get to Monty Python. Sorry, I jumped the gun on that. Uh, but So here's a scene from Dr. Strangelove. Sellers, of course, plays uh, three parts in the movie. Uh, here he is as the President of the United States uh, making the difficult phone call uh, to Russia. Yeah. I've done as you asked. Be careful, Mr. President. I think he is drunk. Hello? Uh, hello, De uh, hello, Dimitri. 
Listen, I, I can't hear too well. Do you suppose you could turn the music down just a little? Oh, that's much better. <laughs> yes. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then... Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. <laughs> now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Uh, well, let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? Why do you think I'm calling you? Just to say hello? Of course I like to speak to you. Of course I like to say hello. Not now, but any time, Dimitri. I'm just calling up to tell you something terrible has happened. It's a friendly call. Of course it's a friendly call. Listen, if it wasn't friendly, you probably wouldn't have even got it. <laughs> it's an amazing movie. Uh, everyone in it is great. If, if you don't know that film, you, you really got to see that one. Um, anyway, so uh, Peter Sellers was kind of uh, really great and the first person to really break out of, out of the, British, the new British comedy tradition. Uh, but then I started hearing about Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Uh, they had a popular show on the BBC, not only, but uh, also. And then the stage shows Beyond the Fringe and the sequel to that, Behind the Fridge. Uh, uh, here's a scene uh, from uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore's television program. It's a, a very uptight father uh, <coughs> giving a, a sex talk to his 18-year-old son, Dudley Moore. Yes, well, I thought it might be a good idea to have a bit of a chat now because I remember from my own experience that it was when I was just, you know, coming up to 18. On the verge. On the verge of it. <laughs> that I first began to take a, a serious interest in the, um, in the opposite, um, the opposite number. <laughs> now, I don't know Roger, if you know anything about the method whereby you came to be brought about. Well, sir, some of the boys at school say very filthy things about it, sir. This is what I was worried about, and this is why I thought I'd have a bit of a chat and explain absolutely, frankly, and openly the method whereby you and everybody in this world came to be. <laughs> In order, in order for you to be brought about, 
It was necessary for your mother and I to do something. In particular, it was necessary for your mother, it was necessary for your mother to sit on a chair. <laughs> to sit on a chair which I had recently vacated and which was still warm <laughs> from my body. And then something very mysterious, rather wonderful and beautiful happened. And sure enough, four years later, about this, Roger. There's nothing unnatural. It's a beautiful thing in the right hands and there's no need to think less of your mother because of it. She had to do it, she did it, and here you are. <laughs> well, sir, it's very kind of you to tell me. One thing actually slightly alarms me. Um, I was sitting in this very chair yesterday, sir, and I vacated it, and the cat sat on it while it was still there. <laughs> and sh should we have it destroyed? It's a lovely chair, Roger. Oh, no, Roger, you don't understand. This thing of which I speak can only happen between two people who are married. And you're not married. Uh, not yet anyway, sir. Not to the cat in any case. Uh, <laughs> there, there's a wealth of great stuff from those guys. Uh, <clears throat> and now, uh, Forget I told that Monty Python story before, and imagine I just told it now. <laughs> uh, so when I got back to the States uh, after Victor had told me about Monty Python, uh, PBS started licensing the uh, BBC shows, uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus. And uh, here's one of the, the great classics. I'm sure you all know it. Uh, it's the cheese shop. John Cleese is coming to buy some cheese from Michael Palin. Certainly, sir. What would you like? Well, uh, how about a little Red Leicester? I'm afraid we're fresh out of Red Leicester, sir. Never mind. How are you on uh, Tilsit? Never at the end of the week, sir. Always get it fresh first thing on Monday. Tish, tish. No matter. Um, well, four ounces of Caffini, then, if you please, stout yeoman. Ah, well, it's been on order for two weeks, sir. I was expecting it this morning. Yes, it's not my day, is it? Uh, Belpaise? Sorry. Red Windsor? Uh, normally, sir, yes. But today the van broke down. Ah. Uh, Stilton? Sorry. Gruyere, Emmental? No. Any Norwegian Jarlsberger? No. Liptar? No. Lancashire? No. White Stilton? No. Danish Blue? No. Double Gloucester? No. Cheshire? No. Any Dorset Blue Vinnie? No. Brie, Roquefort, Pont d'Evêque, Port Salut, Savoyard, Saint-Paulin, Carré de l'Est, Boursin, Brestbleu, Pelle de Champagne, Camembert. Ah, we do have some Camembert. You do? Excellent. It's a bit runny, sir. Oh, I, I, I like it runny. Well, as a matter of fact, it's, it's very runny, sir. No matter, no matter. Hand over la fromage de la belle France qui s'appelle Camembert, s'il vous plaît. I think it's runnier than you like it, sir. I don't care how excrementally runny it is. And a little sweet. Yes, sir. Oh! What? The cat's eating it. Pazzy. She, sir. 
Monty Python as the first uh, postmodern comedy because uh, they drew from everything from every period in history. Their costume pieces are great. Uh, it, it's very literate. It's very silly. It's it's physically funny. It's witty. It's uh, it, it had it all for me and uh, kind of raised the bar a little bit. I thought, uh, but something else was going on in the '60s. Uh, Alan Konigsberg was born in 1935. At 17, he changed his name to Haywood Allen. Uh, and then as Woody Allen, he wrote for Herb Schreiner, Ed Sullivan, and then Sid Caesar, and was making $1,500 a week by the time he was 19 years old. Uh, he started doing stand-up in 1961. He wrote a Broadway hit, Don't Drink the Water. Uh, and then in 66, he dubbed a bad Hong Kong spy thriller and called it What's Up, Tiger Lily. When I saw that film, I thought it was hysterical. And, um, and then he wrote another Broadway hit, Play It Against Sam. And then he did a long, long string of great film comedies. Whatever you think about Woody Allen now, based on his, pers on his private life. Um, those early films are just great, and, and his middle period too. And now he's a little kind of hit and miss, and maybe the uh, Woody Allen shtick has worn a little thin, but those comedies are just brilliant. Take the Money and Run, Bananas, Everything You Always Want to Know About Sex, Sleeper, Love and Death. Uh, here's how good Woody Allen is. He's won three Academy Awards, been nominated a total of 21 times, 14 times as a screenwriter, Six as a director and once as an actor. He has more Screenwriting Academy Award nominations than any other writer, all in the Best Original Screenplay category. Uh, and he's tied for fifth all time with six Best Director nominations. Five actors have won six Academy Awards for their work in his films. Diane Keaton, Michael Caine, Diane Weist, Mira Sorvino, and Penelope Cruz. And 11 actors have received Academy Award nominations for their work in his films. Uh, I remember reading in the 70s, I used to read Psychology Today magazine, uh, and uh, someone had done a dream study, and as part of their dream study, they asked people to, one of the categories was uh, public figures, uh, list any public figures that appeared in your dreams. At that point, in the 70s, Woody Allen was the most dreamt about public <laughs> figure in America. 
And I really think it's because uh, we all experienced a deep-seated angst. Woody Allen embodied that angst in films, and yet he always survived it. He always triumphed. He was the schlemiel loser, uh, nervous about everything, and somehow he always came out on top and got these staggeringly beautiful women uh, and intelligent women. Uh, so uh, I think that's the identification people had with Woody Allen. Uh, here is a scene from uh, Love and Death, one of my favorites, set during the uh, Napoleonic period in Russia. Uh, I think it's just classic. This is the, near the end of the film. You were my one great love. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm dead. What's it like? Uh, what's it like? Uh, you know the chicken at Tresky's restaurant? Yeah. It's worse. Worse than the chicken at Tresky's. Oh, well, life must go on. The last traces of the shimmering dusk are setting behind the quickly darkening evening. And it's only noon. <laughs> Soon we shall be covered by wheat. Did you say wheat? Wheat. Wheat. I'm dead, they're talking about wheat. The question is, have I learned anything about life? Only that, only that human beings are divided into mind and body. The mind embraces all the nobler aspirations like poetry and philosophy, but the body has all the fun. The important thing, I think, is not to be bitter. You know, if, if it turns out that there is a God, I don't think that he's evil. I think that, that the worst you can say about him is that basically he's an underachiever. After all, you know, there are worse things in life than death. I mean, if you've, if you've ever spent an evening with an insurance salesman, you, you know exactly what I mean. The, the key here, I think, is to, to not think of death as an end, but, but think of it more as a very effective way of, of cutting down on your expenses. Regarding love, you know, uh, what can you say? It's, it, it's not the, the quantity of your sexual relations that count. It's the quality. On the other hand, if the quantity drops below once every eight months, I would definitely look into it. Well, that's about it for me, folks. Goodbye. For me, what Woody Allen did for film comedy, not only was he a brilliant writer drawing on the great traditions, but uh, he was a brilliant filmmaker. He, it's like he studied all the, all the great contemporary filmmakers uh, from Bergman and Kurosawa and Fellini and, uh, and was able to put that up on screen. And, um, so his films had a terrific integrity, visual integrity, uh, beautifully styled, uh, impeccably written. Uh, and long takes, uh, the films that I do, like most other people, they were literally cut into little snippets and put together the best line from here and the best line from that take. Uh, all of Woody Allen's films are, are long, continuous takes done by well-rehearsed, beautifully shot. Um, someone said Woody Allen basically will, he's done films that shot in 80 shots. 
and then just assembled the shots, just took off the heads and the tails, whereas I spent like six months like, you know, looking for each word said correctly somewhere. Um, so he, I, I, he really set an incredibly high standard for, uh, for filmmaking in comedy. Uh, and uh, others have come along since. The Coen brothers, I think, are brilliant filmmakers and, and very funny in a very dark way. Not everybody's taste, I know. Uh, but also the Monty Python group. Well, when Terry Gilliam started directing films for them and Terry Jones, they, they had a very good eye. Um, here's their, uh, one of their great historical films. Holy Grail, of course, is terrific. This is from Life of Brian. Uh, it's uh, the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> How blessed are the sorrowful! They shall find consolation. How blessed are those of gentle spirit! They shall have the earth for their possession. How blessed are those who hunger and thirst to see right prevail! They shall be satisfied! How blessed are those whose hearts are pure! Let's see God. Speak up! Oh, well, I'll call you a thing. Let's go to stoning. You can go to a stoning any time. Oh, come on, Brian. Will you be quiet? Don't pick your nose. I wasn't picking my nose, I was scratching. You were picking it while he was talking to that lady. I wasn't. Leave it alone, give it a rest. Do you mind? I can't hear a word he's saying. Don't you do you mind me? I was talking to my husband. Well, go and talk to him somewhere else. I can't hear a bloody thing. Don't you swear, my wife. I was only asking her to shut up so he can hear what he's saying, Big Nose. Don't you call my husband Big Nose. Well, he has got a Big Nose. Could you be quiet, please? What was that? I don't know. It's too busy talking to Big Nose. I think it was blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> What's so special about the cheesemakers? Well, obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products. See, if you haven't been going on, we'd have heard that, Big Nose. Hey, say that once more, I'll smash your bloody face in. Better keep listening. Might be a bit about blessed order Big Noses. Oh, lay off him. Oh, you're not so bad yourself, comp face. Where are you two from? No city? One more time, mate. I'll take you to fucking cleaners. Language! And don't pick your nose. I wasn't going to pick my nose, I was going to thump him! Hear that? Blessed or the Greek, the Greek. Mm. Well, apparently, he's going to inherit the earth. Did anyone catch his name? You're not going to thump anybody. I'll thump him if he calls me Big Nose again. Oh, shut up, Big Nose. Oh, what? I warned you. I really will slug you, so Oh, it's the meek! Blessed are the meek! Oh, that's nice, isn't it? I'm glad they're getting something, because they have a hell of a time. Listen, I'm only telling the truth. You have got a belly, Big Nose. Hey, your nose is going to be three foot wide across your face by the time I finish with you. Shh. Well, who it yours then? Got last big brother. Oh, right. That's your last warning. Oh, do pipe down. My own comedy, uh, Year One, which is uh, inspired a lot by Mel Brooks and uh, Life of Brian. Uh, <clears throat> was not that successful. <clears throat> but I love the idea of taking characters with a contemporary sensibility and putting them in, in important historical settings. Uh, to my way of thinking, there had to be some idiots at the Sermon on the Mount. 
standing there not getting it. You know, at every great event in history, you know, there were guys like me just standing on the fringes uh, screwing around. <clears throat> now, uh, my own work, uh, uh, for me, uh, pales by comparison. <clears throat> but uh, a lot of my early stuff was pretty well received. Um, so I, I brought something from Caddyshack. Caddyshack was my, uh, it wasn't intended this way. It starting out, started out as a uh, coming of age story. We were gonna tell the story of a young caddy. In the process, hired uh, Chevy Chase and Rodney Dangerfield and uh, Billy Murray and uh, ended up, uh, there was this kind of an incredible uh, magnetism to those characters. Uh, and the movie shifted away from the ingenue story uh, and really ended up being their film. And, and I realized as I was doing it, <clears throat> it's like a Marx Brothers movie. <clears throat> Rodney's like Groucho, Bill is like Harpo. Uh, Chevy's the Chico of the, of the, in that formula, and Ted Knight was like the Sig Ruman, the stuffy uh, uh, upper class guy. Uh, and uh, so uh, I went with that and thought, all right, the ingenue story in those, those Marx Brothers films, it hardly mattered, it was nice, the young couple gets together at the end, fine. No one really cared, they just were there to see the Marx Brothers. And in Caddyshack, uh, it's, it's Rodney, uh, uh, Bill, and Chevy that steal the film. So here's one of Bill's uh, classic scenes written by Brian Doyle Murray uh, and me and embellished by Bill. So I jump ship in Hong Kong, and I make my way over to Tibet, and I get on as a looper at a course over there in Himalayas. A looper? A looper. You know, a caddy, a looper. Mm. Jack. So I tell him I'm a pro Jack. And who do you think they give me? The Dalai Lama himself. The 12th son of the Lama. The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. So I'm on a first tee. What am I giving the driver? He hauls off and whacks one. Big hitter, the Lama. Long. Into a 10,000 foot crevice right at the base of this glacier. Do you know what the Lama says? No. Gunga Galunga. Gunga Gunga la Gunga. So we finish 18, and he's going to stiff me. And I say, hey, Lama, hey, how about a little something, you know, for the effort, you know. And he says, oh, uh, there won't be any money. But when you die on your deathbed, you will receive total consciousness. So I got that going for me, which is nice. <laughs> All right, uh, many years later, my wife for her 50th birthday, she uh, had a lot of connection to Buddhism. My, uh, my mother-in-law had lived for uh, over 30 years in a Buddhist meditation center. My wife spent her four college years in a, in a Buddhist meditation center. Uh, so for her 50th birthday, she said, I want to meet the Dalai Lama. So we had some friends in Glencoe uh, who uh, <laughs> knew his holiness. They said, oh yeah, that can be arranged. We went to Washington, D.C. We went to a big public talk. We went to a smaller private dinner. And in the afternoon, our, our friends said, uh, all right, his holiness can see you for a couple minutes. Maybe, you know, he's got to go to, up to Capitol Hill to speak to Congress. So uh, we went into uh, his uh, suite at the Four Seasons, of course, and uh, uh, his, his scheduling secretary was like really nervous because, you know, you got to get up there and, you know, Sierra Club's waiting and congressmen are waiting. 
And the Dalai Lama, he looked at us and he said, sit down, please. So uh, we sat down with him, we talked for a few minutes. Uh, I told him I was a filmmaker. Then he dropped Richard Gere's name on me. He's just like, All right. <laughs> he said, as I said to Richard Gere, you have a great opportunity to speak to people about compassion. All right, great. So, uh, <laughs> a couple more years go by, Dalai Lama came to Chicago. My wife and I were asked to executive produce the, uh, the stage performance that preceded his appearance and set the stage for him. We, we designed the backdrop, the painted backdrops, and uh, great experience. Uh, again, we got to meet with him uh, at the Palmer House. Uh, but this time, the uh, Buddhists were uh, high-level monks and uh, parts of his entourage were coming up to me and saying, what is Caddyshack? <clears throat> and I know oh, Caddyshack's a golf movie, and they said, the Dalai Lama is talked about in this movie? I said, yes, he is, kind of, you know. <clears throat> I guess he hasn't seen it, you know. Uh, and uh, they were interested, but uh, I, they, I said to the Dalai Lama, watch movies? I wasn't going to send him Caddyshack, of course. <laughs> I thought maybe he'd seen Groundhog Day, because all the Buddhists really had embraced Groundhog Day. Uh, they said, no, uh, His Holiness likes nature films. His last film he saw was March of the Penguins. I thought, all right. <laughs> He's not going to be watching meatballs, I thought. All right. Uh, uh, I did a kind of screwball comedy farce. Uh, I'm going with my, a lesser known film, uh, Multiplicity. Uh, it was a film that was very well received by people who saw it, uh, nicely reviewed, uh, did no business because it came out. And, was crushed by big summer blockbusters like Independence Day. Uh, but uh, in it, Michael Keaton is a man who is finding he has no time for himself. His life is really taken up by his work, by his wife, by his family. No time left for him. He responds to a, a, a cryptic advertisement, uh, gets a clone, which he sends to work so he can spend more time with the wife and kids. Uh, and then um, that's not working out well. So uh, here's Michael Keaton, uh, Michael Keaton and Michael Keaton uh, in a scene from Multiplicity. Indiana with the ball. Patterson back to throw. Him, 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 him. Got over the slant. Oh, out of nowhere. Hi. Hey, uh, can I talk to you for a second? Sure. Actually, uh, could uh, use a couple. Sure, come on. Uh, two. Like to meet three. Hi, how are you? Hey, how are you? Are you nuts? Um, are you mentally nuts? No, no, look, look, look. I have the whole thing figured out. Oh, man, what do we need him for? Well, he's going to help me with the kids, and he's going to help me around the house, and I figured when you weren't busy with work or whatever, you guys could hang out together. What do you think? I think it'll be fun. Don't you think? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm giddy. I mean, I, I, there's a lot of stuff we could do together. You said you were lonely. I got your friend. I got your buddy. Well, where, where, where is he going to stay? He's going to live right here with you. That way, you got a friend. You got a roommate. Friend, roommate, one shot. There he is. Look at him. Hi, Romy. Hey, I got an idea. How about no? 
Doug, he needs space. No, no, no. I'm no, step no, outside, you too. What's well, a shock, I think. The idea was for you to work so I could spend more quality time with Laura and the kids, right? Well, so far, it's been low-quality time. Look, I, j I just need to get a break so I can work on the house, for one thing, or maybe sit down and, and think a single thought in quiet, or maybe even go out and play golf every once in a while, you know? Hey, I've been working since I was 12 years old. It's break time. It is. And Doug, I think it's that 12-year-old that's saying, Doug, how about a visit? You need, you need time for Doug. What a suck. No. A suck, I don't even know what a suck is. Please, well, let me explain please, to you. Please, suck. please, please. Come on, come on. Come on. I, for Doug. Fine. There you, you know, go. Screw your life up. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're in way over your head now. Hey, you know, you are two good-looking guys. Hey, look, I'm going to make this up to you. I promise. You can start by cloning Laura. Yeah. Yeah, you can start by cloning her. Can you imagine? Bye, Doug. Have a good time. I am worried about him. He is uptight, don't you think? Yeah, he'll be all right. No. Wow, that's a lot of ribs. What was that, like a slab or something? Yeah. <laughs> Michael, uh, uh, the amazing thing about that film is uh, the special effect of uh, him being cloned and then end up with four with Michael and three other clones, four of them on screen at the same time, is that you don't even notice it. You kind of, and I said to the special effects uh, director, Richard Edlund, if you do this right, no one will even realize how brilliant it is. And <clears throat> Michael spent a month alone on stage just going from character to character. Uh, we figuring out this algebra of uh, <clears throat> how to get him uh, reacting with himself and that incredible synchronization of uh, his character. So uh, I think that film's worth looking at again. Uh, uh, I, I had, um, after Groundhog Day, uh, it, it, that bought me a few more years of uh, credibility in Hollywood. Uh, I, but I moved to Chicago 13 years ago, and uh, my promise to my family was that I wouldn't immediately abandon them and run off to LA to make a movie. But I got a call from my agent who said, uh, Billy Crystal's gonna make a movie about a psychiatrist who uh, starts treating a mob boss and um, <clears throat> we'd like you to uh, direct it. And I said, who's gonna play the mob boss? And they said, well, it doesn't matter, we'll get you know, somebody. And I thought, eh, I don't think so. You know, I, I, if it was just Billy and if it, was, it's, it read very broad, it was like a bad kind of parody of The Godfather and um, I thought, no, I'll pass. And then my agent called back a week later, said, what if it was Robert De Niro? I said, all right, but I've made a promise to my family. Uh, will Robert De Niro and Billy Crystal shoot the movie in Chicago? Uh, next day, my agent calls back, no, they'll only do it in New York. I said, I pass. And I was like kicking myself, but uh, I, I do honor my, uh, my family. So uh, they hired another director, months went by. Uh, that director did a draft of the script. Bob hated it. So I got the call uh, uh, and they said, are you ready to leave Chicago? The appropriate time had gone by. I met with De Niro. Uh, I, made a f uh, I did some very thorough research on the history of organized crime, uh, the Italian mafia, and on uh, the psychology of his character. I, I, I had notes on one little script card. I, I talked to him about four things, um, anxiety, guilt, rage and uh, uh, anxiety, guilt, rage. Anxiety, <laughs> <laughs> guilt, rage. Yeah, that was several years ago. Uh, 
Uh, I'll get the other one. What's the other thing we all suffer from? If anyone comes up with it, right. <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> Depression, yes, thank you. <laughs> grief, yes, grief. Uh, so um, I rewrote the script with uh, Peter Tolan and uh, had a wonderful experience making this film. This is the first uh, therapy session uh, when Robert De Niro has barged into Billy's office uh, interrupting uh, another patient's therapy. Why don't you just tell me about your friend? His friend, you know, he's, uh, he's a very powerful guy. Never had trouble dealing with nothing. Now all of a sudden he's like falling apart. He, he cries for no reason. He can't sleep. He can't be with his friends. All of a sudden he, he gets nervous around them. He, he, like he, he wants to get away from them. And these are guys he knows his whole life, you know? It's like, uh, and then he has like these like attacks, you know? Like, 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 like he can't breathe. It's like, he uh, gets dizzy, chest pains, you know? It's, it's like uh, he thinks he's gonna die or something. Panic attacks. What's up with you guys in all this fucking panic attack? Who said panic? Who said panic? Not panic. Dizzy, chest breathing, constricting yeah. Uh, attacks. Yeah. This guy just wants to know what he can do to make it stop. Mr. Vitti, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think your friend is you. Yo. Yo. You got a gift, my friend. You got a gift. Oh, yeah. You saw that there was something that I was trying to do, and you, you figured that out. That's why you are who you are. God bless you. You got a fucking gift. No, I don't. Yes, you do. I really oh, don't. Yes, you do. Go on. What? Go on. Oh, I think... Medication could help. Drugs? Mm -hmm. Can't do drugs. I don't do drugs. Well, if you really want to get to the root of the problem, you're going to want to get some form of therapy. Well, what, what like with, with you or something, or...? Me? I, no, I don't think you want... I, I, my my uh, roster of patients is, is full. I'm just full right now, so... Plus, I'm leaving on a short vacation. Where are you going? I don't share that with my patients. Where are you going? Sheridan Bell Harbor Hotel in Miami Beach. <laughs> It wasn't so hard, was it? No, it wasn't. You know, it's a funny kind of a thing, but you know, I feel better after I got all that off my chest. I feel like, like a load. A load is off my shoulders. You're good. I... Doc, thank you. Mr. Vitti, I didn't do anything. Oh, you did something? No, I did nothing. You did something? I did The load, gone. Where is it? Don't know. You're good. Nah, nah. You're good, Doc. You're good. I'm going to begin to touch with you. Don't, please. Oh, just one more thing. If I talk to you and you turn me into a fag, I'm going to kill you. You understand? Can we define fag? Because some feelings may come I'm up. I'm no fag, you die. Got it? Uh, so, mm -hmm. huh? You're good, Doc. You're good. See, Doc. <laughs> uh, you know, I, it, it was not until I was an adult that I discovered Preston Sturgis. Uh, uh, 
Sturgis had an interesting life. He, he was raised in Europe uh, with a very eccentric mother. Her name was Marie Desti, a divorce, kind of a gay divorcee. Uh, her best friend was Isidore Duncan. So uh, Sturgis was raised with Isidore Duncan's children all over Europe. Um, came back to the States, worked as a, a perfume chemist in his mother's cosmetics shop. Uh, and then uh, he wrote a hit play, uh, went to Hollywood, became a very well-paid screenwriter. Uh, in like 32 or 33, he wrote The Great McGinty, which was, became his first film. Uh, six years later, he sold it to the studios for $1 uh, in exchange for the right to direct the film. He was the first one who'd ever done that, kind of a, ransomed a script to the studio in exchange for the right to direct. I did it years later with Caddyshack. Um, uh, and even though uh, he had a 30-year Hollywood career, uh, hit and miss. Uh, his biography I read was called Between Flops. Um, his greatest comedies were filmed in an in incredible five-year period uh, from 39 to 43. He turned out The Great McGinty, Christmas in July, Ladies e Lady Eve, Sullivan's Travels, Palm Beach Story, Miracle of Morgan's Creek, and Hail the Conquering Hero. Uh, he won the first ever Academy Award for the Best Original Screenplay for The Great McGinty. At one point, he was the third highest paid man in America. Uh, incredibly successful. Um, half a century later, four of those films, Lady Eve, Sullivan's Travels, Palm Beach Story, and The Miracle of Morgan's Creek are on that list of uh, the American Film Institute's 100 Greatest Comedies. Uh, Unfaithfully Yours, with, uh, which was made in 48 uh, with Rex Harrison, and uh, is one of my favorite comedies. It's, it's, it was not that well received, but it has scenes that I, I still am, uh, I weep with laughter when I see that film. Um, uh, in 44, he did, he tried to do a serious film. It was called The Great Moment, and it was, uh, he wrote it and directed it. It was a story of Dr. William Thomas Green Morton, the dentist who developed ether as an anesthetic. <laughs> Sturgis, uh, he got this incredibly pretentious desire to make a serious film. He wanted to be taken seriously. Um, it's almost as if uh, he anticipated this uh, in Sullivan's Travels, which he did in 1941, uh, a very successful director. Sullivan uh, wants to make a serious film. <clears throat> Here's the part of the opening of Sullivan's Travels. destroy each other. It teaches a lesson, a moral lesson. It has social significance. Who wants to see that kind of stuff? It gives me the creeps. Tell them how long it played in the music hall. It was held over a fifth week. Who goes to the music hall? Communists. Communists? This picture's an answer to communists. It shows we're awake and not dunking our heads in the sand like a bunch of ostriches. I want this picture to be a commentary on modern conditions, stark realism, the problems that confront the average man. But with a little sex. A little, but I don't want to stress it. I want this picture to be a document. I want to hold a mirror up to life. I want this to be a picture of dignity, a true canvas of the suffering of humanity. But with a little sex. 
with a little sex in it. How about a nice musical? How can you talk about musicals at a time like this with the world committing suicide, with corpses piling up in the street, with grim death gargling at you from every corner, with people slaughtered like sheep? Maybe they'd like to forget that. Then why do they hold this one over for a fifth week at the music hall? For the ushers? It died in Pittsburgh. Like a dog. What do they know in Pittsburgh? They know what they like. If they knew what they like, they wouldn't live in Pittsburgh. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what it is about comedy, but so many uh, comedians and, and comic filmmakers that want to be taken seriously, uh, and, and when they do, it's way over the top. Uh, you know, Robin Williams is one of the funniest guys in the world, but he's got a dark, melancholy, serious side that sometimes comes out in movies. He's been quite successful as a serious actor, but others have just uh, really uh, failed at it. Um, Maybe the people who do comedy really are angry, depressed, and uh, really miserable. I don't know. Uh, I'm not, but uh, Woody Allen had the same uh, career crisis as Sturgis, uh, which he expressed in the film Stardust Memories. Uh, it's a kind of a Fellini in style. Uh, the director, played by Woody Allen, is, is invited to a, a film festival on the shore. I think it's on the Jersey Shore somewhere. Uh, and uh, he's, uh, everywhere he goes, people love him, but pretty much they love his early stuff, <laughs> uh, which sounds very familiar to me. Um, <laughs> so uh, here's uh, a classic scene from Stardust Memories in which uh, Woody Allen's character encounters some alien beings. Yeah, the rate we're going, we're not going to be able to either. Do you, you guys got to tell me, why is there so much human suffering? This is unanswerable. Is there a God? These are the wrong questions. Look, here's my point. If nothing lasts, why am I bothering to, to make films or do anything for that matter? We enjoy your films, particularly the early funny ones. But the human condition is so discouraging. There are some nice moments, too. Yeah, with Dory. That's right, and Isabel, be honest. You prefer Isabel? There's no comparison. She's a mature woman. Mature woman? What, what are you, my rabbi? Hey, look, I'm a super intelligent being. By Earth standards, I have an IQ of 1600, and I can't even understand what you expected from that relationship with Dory. I loved her. Yeah, I know. And two days a month, she was the most exciting woman in the world. But the rest of the time, she was a basket case. On the other hand, Isabel is someone that you can count on. But shouldn't I stop making movies and do something that counts, like, like helping blind people or becoming a missionary or something? Let me tell you, you're not the missionary type. You'd never last. And, and incidentally, you're also not Superman. You're a comedian. You want to do mankind a real service? Tell funnier jokes. Yeah, but I, I, I've got to find meaning. <laughs> You want to do mankind a real service, tell funnier jokes. That's kind of where Sullivan's travels goes. He goes through, uh, through hell uh, trying to experience uh, the vicissitudes of life and uh, <clears throat> finds out that people just want to laugh. Uh, but uh, as I approach 65 in a couple weeks, don't applaud for 65 again, uh, <clears throat> uh, these questions of meaning have become very important to me. Um, the psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, who wrote the wonderful book *Man's Search for Meaning*, uh, he survived the uh, the camps in World War II, uh, and his part of his analysis of psychiatry is that Freud uh, imagined that we're driven by a will to pleasure, 
Everything we do is about avoiding pain and seeking pleasure. And then Adler came along and said, no, we're driven by the will to power. And Frankel uh, tops that and says, no, it's really we're driven by the will to meaning. And that's the arc of my career. I started entertaining, I'm sorry, in order to get laid. Okay. <laughs> There it is, the, the will to pleasure. I wanted uh, all the pleasures that, uh, that life had to offer. And then um, my early films were successful and I experienced uh, the pleasures of money and fame, which is the will to power. Now, having been through all that uh, without either causing any serious permanent brain damage or uh, having really achieved any greater comfort than I had when I started, uh, meaning is all that's really left to me. Um, but if uh, Woody Allen and Kierkegaard and Sartre and Camus are right, life is unfortunately essentially meaningless. Um, so where do you go from there? Uh, I, there's a character, <laughs> uh, there's a, I, I'll be going to Spiaggia, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, there's, uh, there's a, a character in, in my, my remake of Bedazzled, played by Brendan Fraser. He's the most erudite, sophisticated author in the world. And uh, he, he says to uh, uh, this woman who's fascinated by him, uh, when she mentions existentialism, he says, every time I reread Camus and Sartre, uh, I will say to myself, why does the existential dilemma have to be so damn bleak? Yes, we're alone in the universe. Life is meaningless and death is inevitable. But is that necessarily so depressing? <laughs> it just puts the burden on us to fill our lives with joy and wonder and weirdness and adventure, whatever it is that makes your heart pound, your mind expand, and your spirit soar. <laughs> You know what they say? Some things in life are bad. They can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, that grumble, give a whistle. And this'll help things turn out for the best. Aye. Always look on the bright side of life Always look on the light side of life If life seems jolly rotten, there's something you've forgotten And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing When you're feeling in the dumps be silly chumps, just purse your lips and whistle, that's the thing. They always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the right side of life. <laughs> <laughs> After, oh, wow. Um, well, uh, maybe we got time for one question, one or two questions. Anybody? My favorite film of mine or of anyone else's? <laughs> now I've, I've got uh, 200 favorite films. I, I can't. I can't do favorites. Uh, 
my, uh, making films has been like the greatest, uh, a tremendous opportunity and a really great pleasure for me. On my, on my worst day as a director, uh, it's been great. So, uh, I mean, those are what I consider high class problems. Um, it's just a real privilege. Uh, and I like them all. There are things that uh, really misfire in a lot of my films. Uh, they're not at all what I intended. But they all have, they all have great things, and in, I see in them uh, what I was going for, and, and to some extent, they're all, for me, successful in some way. Hi. Um, what's your fantasy project that you haven't done yet in this quest for meaning? What's next if you could do anything you wanted to do? Uh, if I could do anything in, in my quest for meaning, uh, it would be to... Uh, uh, <laughs> this sounds sappy. Uh, get through my life with a, a really successful marriage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, we're still good, you know, 25 years. Uh, but uh, it is, it's, it, uh, marriage is tough. It's, it's where you play out all your, all your problems are played out in that dynamic relationship with another person. Uh, making films is easy. Being in a close, intimate relationship with someone over a long period of time, that's really tough. Someone asked the Dalai Lama, uh, what do you do if you're married to an essentially negative person? And the Dalai Lama laughed and said, wow. He said, I'm not married. He said, uh, <laughs> uh, he said, you know, with your neighbor, it's easy. You say hello, you walk by, you see him a couple of times a week. So if it's someone you live with, you know, you're on your own. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Are there a couple actors or actresses that I, I really admire? There's so many that I admire, uh, and we would all probably make the same list. Uh, the amazing thing to me is how much talent there is and um, how little uh, really superior work happens as a result of it. Uh, film schools churn out really good people on the technical side, great designers, great cameramen, uh, acting schools, wonderful actors. Uh, they're writers, they're, they're not dumb. There are a lot of really smart people writing films and television. Uh, but it's so hard to get it all together. Uh, so my, I always say there are more uh, well-made films than good films. Um, and when, when they are good, I just uh, really want to celebrate those things. What do we do to make Chicago funnier? Say that again? I'm sorry. I heard Chicago fire. What do we do to make Chicago funnier, especially with the Olympics going? Oh, to, make it, to make it finer? Did funnier. You? Funnier. Oh. Uh, Chicago's uh, pretty funny, but uh, it's, uh, there's a lot of uh, conflict going on. I'm, uh, I'm really concerned about uh, uh, some important social issues. Uh, Chicago has become the, a global center for comedy. Second City is now one of the, the great university of comedy. It, uh, it keeps turning out uh, funny people uh, every minute. Uh, someone great is coming out of there. So uh, we're a pretty funny town, I think. When I saw the ice harvest, I was struck by how dark it was. Uh, why did you switch from making all these nice, great comedies to this kind of dismal and sad film? <laughs> I must say before I go on, the ice harvest is one of my favorite Christmas movies of all time. <laughs> it's a great Christmas film, yeah. Uh, it's, it should play with the, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, uh, it, it's, it, was, it was one of the best written scripts I was ever sent. It was written by uh, Robert Benton, who had won the Academy Award a couple of times, and Richard Russo, who had recently won the Pulitzer Prize for his novel Empire Falls. It was so mature and so smart, 
And I, I'm, as I said earlier, I'm a big fan of the Coen brothers. I, uh, I like those uh, contemporary film noir. And uh, this one just seemed uh, to meet all those criteria, but was also very funny, I thought. And uh, it came together real quick, and uh, we were able to shoot it locally, pretty much in Waukegan and other nearby locations. So it was a great opportunity for me to make a different kind of film. It's not like I said, gee, now I should make something really dark. It was just the next best thing that came across my desk. Um, did you end up working with people like Bill Murray and that whole crew from Chicago through Second City or from living in Chicago originally? Or is that how you got connected to who are now really famous actors? Yeah, I, Second City was really where we all got together. I was started working in Second City in uh, late 68 in the touring company, got on the main stage in 69. And in, uh, in that early company uh, was Brian Doyle Murray uh, and uh, one day Brian said, hey, let's go up to uh, Wilmette and have, my, you know, my mom wants to make dinner for us. Uh, you meet my family. I went up there and he said, let's stop off and uh, pick up my brother Bill, who's working. Uh, and Bill was running the uh, concession stand on the ninth hole at the Wilmette Public Golf Course. <laughs> uh, he had just graduated from Loyola Academy. Um, he was very funny. I saw him again, I think that winter, at the Treasure Island across the street from Second City on Wells Street. He was selling hot chestnuts on the street. Uh, funniest chestnut salesman you'll ever see. Uh, and then next time I came back to Chicago, I, I, I was traveling a lot in those uh, days. Uh, uh, I came back and he was in the company at Second City and uh, already a, a powerful comic force and a very disruptive force. Um, <laughs> And then, I, at that time, when uh, I'd been working with John Belushi, John had gone off to work at the National Lampoon. John, I also met at Second City, we worked together there. He brought a bunch of people to New York to work at the National Lampoon. Uh, he brought Gilda Radner and Bill Murray and me and Brian and Joe Flaherty, and we became the Lampoon Company. So we all had this, uh, this history going, and then uh, Lampoon wanted to make a film. I started writing uh, the Animal House, and. Um, that got made with Belushi, although we had written parts uh, for Bill and also Dan Aykroyd. Um, the studio didn't want them at that point. And then um, uh, Ivan Reitman kind of brought Bill and I together in movies. First, uh, well, I got, first I used him in Caddyshack, and then I wrote on Meatballs, which he was in, and then we co-starred, and I co-wrote Stripes, and then, uh, and then the Ghostbusters, of course, and Groundhog Day. We did six films together. Uh, but we were a, kind of a comedy mafia, not unlike uh, the Judd Apatow crowd that's uh, working now. So. Basically. Pardon? You gave Bill Murray his start, basically. Well, he gave me my start in a <laughs> sense. Um, I, I, I have a red light, which means I'm going to quit in a second. But I'll, I say this to film students all the time now. Uh, identify the most talented person in the room. And if it's not you, go stand next to them. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining the Ghostbusters Interdimensional CrossRip. Visit us at ProtonCharging.com, GhostbustersHQ.net, and StillPlayingWithToys.net. You could be one of my two favorite shows. You're kidding me. Oh, great. What was the other one? Bassmasters. Anything you're doing is bad. You truly scare me. And let's get promoted. Don't look at me. I think these people are completely nuts. Next week, though, hairless pets. Weird.